Philly, you are so wonderful and interesting. You deserve a local news podcast all your own. Check out the John Cast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. Pretty wild situation involving that libel case brought against the New York Times by former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin. A judge's comment, a jury's decision, news push alerts, free speech, this has it all, and it is a lot to unpack on multiple levels. So to try and do that, we caught up with Craig Green, professor of law at Temple University's Beasley School of Law. So to start, to just kind of set the table about what this case was all about, this stems from a 2017 editorial in the New York Times that linked Sarah Palin to the 2011 mass shooting that wounded former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. Am I correct? Yes. The editorial was called America's Lethal Politics, and it was trying to make a link between some of the nastiness of American politics and physical violence shootings. And so that story, the editorial was initially really about Steve Scalise shootings, Representative Steve Scalise in 2017, but then it echoed back to 2011 and the shooting of Representative Giffords. And that's where things really got in trouble with Sarah Palin. The editorial was written by one person, but the the person really at the center of this was an editor who kind of added in to the editorial, correct? Yes, and his name's James Bennett. And it's not so unusual to have writing and then have it edited. But in this instance, there was a single person, James Bennett, who really made that connection. And the the language that got him in particular trouble, he said there was a clear link between the 2011 shooting of Representative Giffords and some propaganda campaign materials from Sarah Palin's PAC. And that uh, campaign material had put out a map and had crosshairs over different districts that were being targeted. Well, the New York Times said that those crosshairs were over the faces of or the persons of individual representatives. And so therefore it was, of course, none of that was true. Um, And the link had actually been, this is the most damaging part, the link had been debunked in the New York Times and also in the Atlantic. There had already been stories uh, debunking that kind of connection. Nevertheless, this guy, James Bennett, uh, with his editorial power, put the words clear link, a clear link between Sarah Palin's propaganda and the shooting of Representative Giffords. That was totally wrong. So let's talk about the trial itself. Pretty high bar that you have to hit to prove libel defamation uh, that Sarah Palin was trying to to prove. And it kind of all stems back to a Supreme Court case from the 60s, New York Times versus Sullivan. Yes, uh, that's the case involved uh, some civil rights activists put up an ad in the New York Times that accused some Southern government leaders of various racist conduct and participation in racism. And those Southern uh, politicians sued the New York Times uh, for putting up this uh, libelous, allegedly libelous information. Well, the Supreme Court, hearing that case, New York Times, we saw them back in the 60s. The Supreme Court said, when you're dealing with a public figure, when you're dealing with a public figure, uh, the Constitution, the First Amendment, free speech, guarantees free and robust public debate. And that includes some things that aren't actually true. Uh, And the standard for what crosses the line from false things that somebody might say about a public figure to things that are truly 
libelous, slanderous, defamatory. That standard is called actual malice. And the actual malice standard requires that the speaker either concretely knows the thing they're saying is untrue or that they have reckless disregard for the truth. And over time, since the 60s, uh, that standard has been very, very hard for plaintiffs to meet. In fact, in, in 50 years, the New York Times, just to pick one example, in 50 years, the New York Times has never lost in court a libel or slander defamation case uh, because that legal standard is so, so high, so difficult to meet. So the case itself goes on. And then when we get to the verdict, we have this interesting situation where I read one day that the judge says he's dismissing, but he's going to allow the jury to continue to deliberate. And then I don't know if it was a day or two later, the jury comes back uh, unanimous in favor of the New York Times. Before we talk about the fallout of that, that as a layman, that seems odd to me. Why would the judge say that and then still wait for the jury? I, I, I don't see why you do that. Yeah, I think it's very unusual. Uh, I think uh, the judge in this case has done a number of things, actually, that are a little unusual. But this unusual thing, um, the idea of publicly stating his own opinion that this case should be dismissed no matter what the jury decides, that is very unusual. Uh, there are a lot of steps along the way where a judge can dismiss a case on his or her own. Um, but once it goes to a jury, uh, I think that uh, most people would say uh, the time for commentary or editorializing or much less announcing the judgment you would make in the future. I, I think that's that's not ordinary judicial conduct. It might even not be that appropriate. Um, it's not something I've encountered very often. You know, it's a little bit regular for uh, district judges to let cases go to a jury, even if they think it's no good. Uh, the case, they let it go to the jury and maybe the jury decides one way or that's not so unusual. But the idea which happened here the idea that judge would let it go to a jury and nevertheless announce uh, his view of the case, I think, is is a little bit strange. And it certainly backfired in this case. Before we talk about how it backfired, can you think, is this just ego or just a judge that's just kind of a stream of consciousness and can't help him? I mean, is there anything you can think of as to why he would offer this kind of, you know, without being asked? Yeah, it's really hard to get in a judge's mind at some distance. But uh, there are a couple things that I can think of. Uh, one of them, which he said, is he believes this case will be appealed to the Second Circuit. We can talk about that. And he wanted to make sure and be clear on the record before the jury came back. He wanted the Second Circuit judges to know that he believed this case was no good, that this case did not meet the standards for actual malice, that uh, James Bennett did not actually know the thing he was saying was untrue, and he did not do it sort of a reckless disregard for the truth. Uh, he's just wrong, uh, just happened to be wrong. So uh, I think the judge in this case wanted to be clear for future appeal. This was his opinion of the case. Maybe in the idea of fleshing out or informing or something the Court of Appeals judges about his appraisal, a very long-standing judge, uh, in New York, a, a very respected judge. Maybe he felt like his opinion was important for that purpose. The one other thing to mention is um, actually he had already been reversed in this case a few years before. So in 2017, uh, this judge dismissed uh, Palin's defamation case and um, he did so with a procedural irregularity. He let James Bennett 
sort of testify and be cross-examined, didn't let any other evidence in, but just let uh, testify and be cross-examined and use that in dismissing the case. Second Circuit reversed on that technical ground. So he'd already been reversed in this case once before. Uh, and so maybe he felt uh, sort of particularly um, um, licensed or open to express his point of view about it. But I think in the end, uh, it's not, I think, what anybody would recommend that a judge should opinion uh, offer their opinion about a case that's gone to the jury before the jury comes back. So I, don't, I don't think there's anything to defend about it uh, or anybody to recommend about it. Uh, I think it's not not the way that jury trials uh, ordinarily would work. And I think technology really changed to make it especially dangerous in this particular circumstance. But I don't think judges normally do it. I don't think this judge normally does it. Uh, and I think that if uh, I think if, if it could be done again, I think he wouldn't do it uh, in any future cases. And before we talk about that technology fallout, the case itself, basically, the Times said honest mistake, you know, and obviously Sarah Palin said this did damage to her character. Where do you fall on what we know about those two things? I mean, Sarah Palin's still a pretty high profile Republican figure. Uh, she's been on television a ton. Uh, what do you think about what we learned in the trial about the actual action? Sure. So the two separate issues, actual malice and damages. So on the actual malice issue, uh, you know, Sarah Palin filed this case. It turns out really quick after the editorial was filed, uh, 12 days, I think, after the editorial was filed. Uh, she's got the case filed and uh, suing The New York Times uh, with her own political benefits in doing so, to be clear. Um, but their theory of the case is basically, number one, this is a political smear job because The New York Times hates Sarah Palin. And so they have a lot of sort of effort to characterize The New York Times as an anti-Sarah Palin type of entity uh, that's uh, smearing her uh, in violation of actual malice. It is truly malicious in some sort of psychological way. Uh, maybe James Bennett or you know, whoever it is doesn't really doesn't like Sarah. And the second uh, argument they have on actual malice is, look, the New York Times has already debunked this connection. So how can the New York Times then turn around and say it's an honest mistake to assert that same connection that they themselves debunked? And that that's, you know, all of that is, is uh, and, and the judge was very clear about it. And James Bennett was very clear about it. The New York Times lawyers very clear about it. New York Times made a mistake, a bad mistake. Uh, they printed something wasn't true without very good reasons for doing it. Um, but that really high standard we were talking about, the actual malice standard, they did not, James Bennett did not actually know that the words he was putting in that editorial were false. And he did not actually behave in a reckless disregard for the truth kind of way. Uh, that very, very high standard, it wasn't met. So I think that, uh, you know, I think that on the evidence, as I understand it, on the evidence, I understand it, the New York Times had a, a really a pretty strong argument in the end uh, that this was not actual malice, a very high standard, protects a lot of free speech throughout the country for a long time, um, doesn't actually meet that. Uh, the other issue is damages, because uh, if anything, uh, I think there would be an argument, uh, New York Times didn't make the argument, but would be an argument that Sarah Palin actually kind of profited, uh, benefited from having herself uh, be a, um, a central adversary of the New York Times in her political circles, that's not necessarily a bad thing, it might be a good thing. And at the very least, they went through and tried to show, the New York Times lawyers did, that she did not suffer for this. She did not suffer uh, financially, uh, she did not suffer psychologically, she did not suffer in her family circle, she did not suffer in her friend circle. There was no real evidence of uh, shame or hurt or pain or this kind of a stuff uh, that would justify an award of damages. Um, but the real issue, the legal issue, the legally decisive issue for the judge 
And, you know, the jury's verdict is a little bit different. But, uh, you know, I think that either issue would really be a trouble for the plaintiff. Uh, they can't show actual malice. I think that's it's difficult, very, very difficult to show. And I, I think there's not terrific evidence here of actual malice. And then I think the damages, I mean, it's a really a small, um, if not zero, damages amount, which I think, you know, only shows again that this is this lawsuit is really about sort of uh, personal dignity or affront or something like this. It's not about dollars and cents or any kind of um, the sort of conventional idea of injury or suffering. We talk about the judge says he would dismiss. The jury comes back unanimous in favor of the times. And yes, it might be appeal, but it looks like we put a bow on this. And then we get the news breaking uh, the other day that juries jurors said, oh, yeah, we got push alerts talking about what the judge said. And I don't know. Once again, as a layman, that seems to me it's hard to separate that. And, oh, it didn't influence the jury. Well, they're human beings. If they know this thing's going out the window anyway and they're leaning one way, they're maybe not going to give it the thought that they should. And I'm not hammering the jurors. I think that's just kind of human nature. You know, kind of talk about what we learned here, how this could play out. Sure. I mean, this is a 21st century problem and the judge is a 20th century judge. And, um, you know, I think the idea that, uh, you know, for many of your listeners, the idea, you know, maybe they themselves got push alerts when the judge announced, you know, but certainly a lot of people did from any sort of news organization. That was a big story for a minute. And so these jurors didn't have to look around. They'd have to go search the Web. They'd have to do anything on their own. Uh, to find out about the judge's opinion about the case they're supposed to be sitting on, uh, that information just popped up in their phone, just like you know any other thing you know uh, that that would pop up. And um, so I think that you know I think it wasn't foreseen that this would happen. I think it is a technology issue, uh, predictable in hindsight. Uh, and I have to say, anybody who's listening, if you were on a jury and you found out the judge thought that you should vote for the defendant, I just think that that's exactly what you know, juries should be protected from the whole reason you have an insulation of the jury. Go and talk about just the jurors, not the judge is to insulate the jurors, have them make their own decision about what's right and wrong and what the facts are and what the legal that sort of stuff is all being done by the jury, not the judge. And so I think it's a real problem for this case. Uh, the idea that jurors found out before they reached their verdict, they found out that the judge had issued this public statement about his opinion of what should happen in the case. I think that's a huge problem. Um, you know, will it lead to a mistrial? I think there are pretty decent arguments that it might, uh, although it will depend on, it may depend on, um, you know, how much it really influenced the jury. But, I, you know, the same as you, it's very hard for me to imagine if I were a juror and I heard the judge thought I should vote for the defendant, I would be hard for me to think that wouldn't affect my own appraisal of things. And I think that's a very, very easy argument to make. And uh, if the district judge doesn't, uh, appreciate that argument. It's possible a second circuit on appeal will. So what is the timeline here? This is something, does it go to appeal before they can declare a mistrial? Does it go back before this judge and they argue that what your actions led to this and it should be a mistrial? What should we expect next? News developing every single day. Uh, as of the last time I checked, the judge had uh, issued some sort of a mysterious message that if this information prompted anyone to want to do anything, they should contact his office, uh, says to the litigants. Uh, I think it's very likely that uh, the Palin attorneys will pr probably ask for a mistrial, uh, claim that this jury was infected by this improper information and therefore basically to start the trial 
over again. I think that's that's the kind of argument that I would expect them to make. And I'm not sure the district judge can make a decision on that motion for mistrial if that's what ends up happening. Uh, and if he denies it, then I, you know, I think it's true the uh, Sarah Palin's attorneys are going to appeal this anyway, but that will be one of their grounds for appeal. Their ground on appeal, they say this is actual malice, not that it wasn't. And they also say this judge influenced the jury improperly. And for that reason, the jury's verdict against us will say the attorneys should not stand. And are, do you anticipate, is this a matter of days, is this weeks, months that we would have uh, the declaration of a mistrial or is it hard to tell? It's hard to tell. I think if it, it also depends who's the who's the actor. If it's the district judge, uh, it could be days or weeks. Um, the time frame for an appeal to the Second Circuit, I think, would definitely be months. You know, they have to file briefs. They have to do oral arguments. I think the idea of getting relief from them uh, in a matter of weeks would be impossible. Uh, I think it, it is possible the district judge can act as fast or as slowly as he feels is necessary to deal with these issues. He could ask for briefing. He could not ask for briefing. He could ask for the lawyers to come in and make arguments. He could not do that. Um, you know, I, I think, um, but I think this is a very serious problem for the case. It's the last thing any judge would want to have happen uh, after all this time uh, with all this work uh, and this jury and so forth. Uh, and just really, um, it's such an un unforced uh, error, unforced problem. And I think it's a, it's really a, uh, a sad uh, sort of ending for this trial. And safe to say every judge in America has taken note of this and probably learned a lesson vicariously. Oh, I think so. I think for any folks out there who are not uh, thinking hard about the information's popping up on people's phones, which they already should be. I mean, phones are not a new invention. Uh, but I think uh, I think this kind of uh, statement by a judge is not the kind of thing any any future judge should 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 probably do at all. Certainly not do uh, take lightly, uh, because especially in a high profile case, which is a very high profile case like this, um, it's hard enough to insulate the jury at all. And uh, making news makes news. And I think unfortunately, uh, this judge right at the wrong moment uh, ended up making news and thereby jeopardizing the whole project. And I wanted to talk, kind of take a 30,000 foot, because we talked about New York Times versus Sullivan and the importance of, and I think you've used in the past, like foundational precedent that it kind of sets. I've seen some writing, some talk, some people, mostly on the political right, that were kind of hoping that this case would maybe eventually get pushed before the Supreme Court because they hoped the Supreme Court would take a look at New York Times Sullivan with the conservative uh, leanings of the court. Uh, and it's also a court that really precedent is more of a suggestion than, uh, than anything else. Uh, do you see this possibly eventually being a vehicle? And if not this, could you see a push to get some sort of case like this before the Supreme court and change that? Yeah, I think right alongside the particulars of this case, which are interesting in their own right. Uh, but there is this big legal issue about, uh, what free speech protects with respect to public figures. It's the kind of thing that uh, then candidate Donald Trump talked about. Uh, I think uh, Justice Clarence Thomas has talked about, some other justices too, uh, have talked about maybe uh, this 1960s era, civil rights era, free speech protection goes too far. Now, other countries, Britain, uh, France, I think that you know, they have much less free speech protection. You have to be a lot more careful what you say about public figures than in America. 
in America. It's the right to say things that are wrong. Uh, free speech uh, includes the right to say things about public figures that are inaccurate, that don't reach that actual malice standard. So there's been a movement for, you know, four or five years, not much longer than that, I don't think, a movement for four or five years to really rethink how much elbow room the media and commenters and so forth have. And I think that um, it is possible, you're quite right, uh, the Supreme Court, six to three majority of conservatives on the Supreme Court, even once uh, President Biden has his new appointee uh, confirmed, still a six to three conservative majority. And a lot of precedents feel a lot less stable than they used to. This foundation of American free speech might also be up for revision, might up for scaling it back. And this Palin case, the facts of the Palin case, are exactly the kind of thing uh, that some on the right have in mind. You, you used to have, a, still have a figure like Donald Trump. People say all kinds of things about Donald Trump, some of them accurate, some of them not accurate, all of them protected by the First Amendment. All of them protected by the First Amendment. Uh, people say things about Sarah Palin, some things that are true, some things that are not true. Even the New York Times has said things in this case that are not true. And, you know, uh, the First Amendment, at least as we interpreted for the last 50 years, uh, the First Amendment protects uh, media outlets, social media speakers, uh, private individuals, um, all kinds of folks can say things that are not true, but are never not actually malicious, uh, do not cross that threshold into actually being able to sue for money uh, and for damages in in certain number of cases. And so I think, you know, when you think about what free speech means in America, uh, a lot of it is traceable to New York Times v. Sullivan. And I don't think this case will be the one that ends up being taken up to revise things because of the political angle that actually being Sarah Palin in the case, who herself is such a political controversial uh, right wing figure. But I think that uh, I think that everyone should keep their eye open. On the one hand, you have the scaling back of free speech with respect to public figures and libel law defamation. And at the same time, everybody knows uh, the conservative justices are amping up free speech with respect to campaign contributions and the role of money uh, in elections and so forth. And so you know, this odd reorganization uh, and transformation of First Amendment law that I think is both really happening and also possibly happening. I think there are some things that are happening right now, and I think damaging or weakening or transforming or even overruling New York Times v. Sullivan, I don't think it's going to happen in the short run. But I think it is something to keep an eye on because until 10 years ago, nobody would have talked about it. And now some people are talking about it. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.